Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, guys. On Thursday, the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, the world's largest bank in the globe's biggest market, was hit by a cyber attack. Its trading desk wasn't able to settle transactions, and the bank had to reroute trades and send settlement deals to counterparties in New York City by a bike messenger carrying a thumb drive. What do you think about that, Phil? Well, first of all, I'm glad they had the old school technology to back everything up. Uh, secondly, you know, Zach Mannheim on our team is our compliance officer. Uh, it is his job, uh, one of them, to keep the, the firm safe. We take this extremely seriously inside of Focus Wealth Management, uh, and, and we vet our counterparties on a routine basis. Uh, actually, Zach was just out at in Huntington Beach at ComplySci's annual conference uh, where he was also named, by the way, a Compliance Officer of the Year. Um, and Zach, uh, talked to us about what you learned out there. This hack happened while you were there and what – I know you were with various SEC counterparts and what they said about it and uh, what we're doing internally at Focus Wealth Management to safeguard our clients' assets uh, in this really uh, world uh, filled with cyber attacks. Yeah, it, it really was uh, timely that that case happened um, during our compliance conference. Um, Obviously, this is an issue that is inescapable in 2023. Um, this affects everybody from the highest level of government and business um, all the way down to people's personal accounts. And the reality is that uh, no amount of hardware or software can prevent a cyber attack with 100% certainty. And anybody that tells you otherwise is either blissfully unaware or lying to you. Um, so that being said, we take plenty of steps um, to make sure that we are minimizing our cybersecurity risk. Um, the first that we do is uh, adopt written policies and procedures regarding consumer data in accordance with SEC's Regulation SP. So this was a rule that was enacted by the SEC to protect the confidentiality of non-public personal records and ensure firms are doing everything they can to safeguard client info. So we have four and a half pages in this in our compliance manual. Um, and if you want to look through them, please feel free to reach out and we'll happily provide that to you. But some of the highlights um, include the following. Uh, we only collect the information that is reasonably necessary for business purposes. Um, any device that has access to client info must be password protected and up to date on all security. We will share client data with third parties only when necessary and under a strict set of rules and maintaining our cybersecurity capabilities with emerging threats and industry best practices. So um, this is a, a, a rule by the SEC that I actually think was ahead of its time when it was enacted in 2000, believe it or not, um, with the importance of data privacy, um, making headlines, you know, much more recently. The fact that the SEC was addressing this back in 2000 um, is actually comforting. So that's the bare minimum. We're mandated to do that by the SEC. So, you know, we do like to go above and beyond. Um, so the next thing that we do to safeguard client data is we conduct rigorous due diligence on any vendor or outside firm that we do business with. Um, there are many different moving parts to our business. So we work with many different vendors to help provide our clients with the highest level of care possible. Um, this includes people like our custodians, our cloud storage partners, our CRM, DocuSign, et cetera, et cetera. So because of this, we understand uh, we have an obligation to our clients to make sure that these vendors are trustworthy and they align with our values when it comes to consumer protection. Um, we will not work with any vendor that does not pass this criteria. And lastly, and I think most importantly, uh, is our focus on employee training. 
we can have the best technology in the world, um, but at the end of the day, our employees are the first line of defense and safeguarding uh, against cyber attacks. It seems that uh, scam emails are getting more and more common every day. And unfortunately, they can be incredibly effective for bad actors. One of the initiatives that we've undertaken recently that I'm most proud of is conducting simulated phishing tests for our employees. So basically, we'll pretend to be a hacker and email our employees to try to see if they would have fallen victim to a cyber attack. Uh, if they fail, this triggers a mandatory training that teaches them all the red flags they missed and how to better be prepared for if it were a real test. So this has been incredibly effective and uh, it's actually helped me out a lot in identifying scam emails um, better on a day-to-day -day basis. So this is just a high level of what we do every day. Um, the conference was very informative. We, we had a lot of good discussion about cybersecurity best practices. And, uh, you know, it's definitely a lot, but uh, we're, we're definitely doing everything in our power to, to keep our data safe. Okay, great. Thank you, Zach. Thank you for all that. And here's the second question. <clears throat> Congress has until November 17th reached a deal to fund the U.S. government for fiscal year 2024. If there's no deal, the government will probably shut down, which could damage the current stock market rally. What should we expect if the shutdown happens, and how will that affect how will that affect investments? It feels like deja vu all over again, doesn't it? It feels like almost every couple of weeks we're talking about another, you know, random type of government variable that we have to work through, given these circumstances. That it's really. Uh, I mean, it, it is challenging, and obviously, by the course of time, markets have to climb that wall of worry, right? Where there's always these this outside variable that you really have to think about and you have to work through from an investment type period. But from what it actually seems like is transitioning out of really the longest period since the Civil War, where we actually didn't have a speaker at the House. It, it, it really doesn't seem that every day that goes by, the probability of another government shutdown obviously increases and rises. But what it really seems to be happening is that they're looking to kind of piecemeal some of these deals out. So throughout the course of time, we may have a, a number of votes that actually they'll, they'll pass one thing, maybe pass a CR, punt another thing to the beginning of next year. So you're always going to have this kind of moving in the background and. Ultimately, at the end of the day, this is just a negative variable because just over the weekend, you had another credit rating agency come out and basically put the U.S. government's debt on heightened watch for another downgrade. And if they get, if, if this actually takes place, then no ratings agency will carry a AAA rating on the U.S. debt anymore. And it just it elevates the probability that you're going to see some type of a credit event at some point in the future. Not saying that the government's going to default on its debt because that is very unlikely in the grand scheme of things. And even if you have a uncertain type of bond auction, the Federal Reserve would probably just step in to basically solve up that excess supply via another mechanism of quantitative easing wall over again. But I think that you're seeing this period of time, what we've said, higher for long run interest rates, largely due to the fact that not only do you have inflation expectations that are going to be higher than we proceeded in the post-financial crisis era, but you're also in this variable where there's so much uncertainty about whether the government can actually cohesively maybe read that topic. So that raises the risk of, and the interest rate on the government's debt. And it's probably just going to be a hard for long conversation, unfortunately, with this kind of loops in the background or the top. You know, I have to tell you what's uh, really timely about this one, too. 
Uh, over the past two weeks, we saw roughly $500 million out of our $1.5 billion uh, client base. And, you know, we talked about a large uh, portion of, you know, talking about our 2023 forecast. And then our firm economic market update, our focus wealth management's 2024 forecast talked about political dysfunction. And we'll be emailing that out to all of our clients who were not in the room uh, over the past few weeks. But when you look at the government variables, at, uh, to Michael's point, and the time that was spent on that, uh, higher for longer and debt downgrades, which, you know, really make uh, the U.S. and our sovereign debt uh, the highest yielding in the world because of worries about our credit worthiness because of our political dysfunctions. So this is really just spun out of control. I saw over the weekend, too, uh, another congressman uh, uh, quit, um, you know, who is who is up uh, upstate New York, maybe Buffalo area, uh, citing political dysfunction, uh, you know, within the parties and just getting sick of it. Um, so, you know, I hope that now look, markets, equity markets, uh, the, you know, equity markets applaud government dysfunctionality. Uh, bond markets do not, right? So this is always, there's a push and pull in, in bond and equities. And this is one of those push and pulls that we'll see about. But, you know, you got the 10-year this morning ticking at, what, 4.67, highest in, in quite a while, uh, considering where it was last week, two weeks ago, et cetera. So um, we're going to pay for the government's dysfunctionality here, even though uh, gov- uh, markets do like a, a weaker, out-of-the-way, hands-tied, gridlock government which no matter who wins the White House next, we're going to see for the next four to six years, uh, as we said in all 15 events we had over the past uh, two weeks. You know what? I love that you brought you know the firm economic market update into this too, because we we really spent a lot of time talking about how a lot of returns were driven by the Magnificent Seven. And then on the back end of it, we talked about the balance sheets of these companies, right? Obviously, the Magnificent Seven are the seven largest companies in the S&P 500, which have largely driven the returns for this year. But to the same regard, these companies yeah. have extremely strong balance sheets with incredible amounts of cash on hand that one could argue have a higher degree of defensiveness upon so the U.S. government does at this very juncture. And the euro rallies on our government dysfunctionality, right? You, you know. Yeah, so there's a degree of safety. Yeah, and up, up again this weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks, guys. That was great. And if you'd like to submit a question... Send it to our email address, which is question at twoquestiontuesday.com, and we'll be back next week.